Hello everyone, my name is Dave and it is my privilege to be able to share with you on this Good Friday uh, something of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, of those moments when Jesus was placed on the cross and died and the significance of that and the importance of that. Today we're going to be exploring some of that through uh, the story as told by one of Jesus' closest friends called John who also wrote an eyewitness account of his life and his death and his resurrection. Now, I want to start by reading a couple of those verses from the story about Jesus' death on the cross. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk, of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. Now we will carry on reading that in a little bit, but I want to pause there because there's something in, in this that I want to examine from Jesus' own perspective, from what was going on for him as he hung there on the cross. And we read in these words that Jesus did something so that scripture would be fulfilled and knowing that in some ways it was time that it was time for him to die. Now, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? What was going on in Jesus's mind? Well, the, the words that, that, that he says, I am thirsty, they're sort of taken from ideas found in the Old Testament in Psalm 22. The Psalms were a collection of songs and Jesus knew his scriptures very well. And in that scripture, in Psalm 22, it's, it's a psalm that is full of descriptions of someone who is suffering, someone who is in pain, who's in emotional turmoil, but also physical pain, who's, being, who's suffering, who's being mocked, who's being um, put down by his enemies. And it's this that Jesus turns to, actually not just in these words here, but earlier on his, his clothes have been, have been divided up amongst the soldiers who are there killing him. Again, that's found in Psalm 22 and on Jesus's own lips, in other accounts of, of his death, we read him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which are the first words of Psalm 22. It's, it's as though in these moments, that part of scripture was what Jesus turned to, that that was something of his internal monologue, that that was something that, that, that summed up and described what it was that he was going through. And so I want us to listen to those words, some of those words from Psalm 22 in this short video. And as you listen, listen to this as Jesus' own internal journey as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
my heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. There are words there of deep pain, of suffering, of being troubled, found in Psalm 22, which Jesus used to describe, to depict what was going on for him. There, were, there was a sort of physical and external horror and pain to what was happening. The whole method of crucifixion was designed to be painful, to be humiliating, to be the very worst punishment that someone could receive. It began with the mockery and the insults as someone was forced to carry the very thing that would be used to kill them, that they would die on, while crowds lined the streets spitting on you, hurling insults at you, mocking you, trying to punish you for what they perceive that you've done wrong, declaring their victory over you. Then there was the physical pain and torture of breathlessness as you're struggling to lift yourself up to breathe, of that thirst that we've heard of, but also of the, of the nails being driven through joints in your bones to hold you there for hours or sometimes for days before someone would eventually die. It was all designed to inflict the maximum pain and punishment. This is what Jesus went through. This is the physical horror of the cross for him. It was widely recognised to be the worst punishment. In fact, the Romans who were famous for this mode of punishing people, the Romans who are the ones that used it so often to punish criminals, they themselves were, were in some ways embarrassed or squeamish about it. The Romans didn't want to admit that they'd come up with it. They, they attributed this method of crucifixion, this method of, 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 of execution for people. They said, well, no, it couldn't be us that came up with that. It was the Persians or it was the Assyrians or it was the Gauls, these, these nations that they described as barbaric. Even the very people who were inflicting crucifixion on people didn't want to admit that they'd had it within them to come up with the idea. That's how awful, that's how brutal, that's how horrific this was physically for those who suffered it. Inhumane, awful, horrific. But there is another kind of horror going on here, not just a physical horror, there is a spiritual dimension to what is going on here. And it's that spiritual dimension that is the reason that centuries, millennia later, this is still a moment that people look to as significant and important personally for them. Not just the physical dimension, but the spiritual 
dimension. Captured already in what we've, what we've remembered, Jesus' words as he cried out in Aramaic from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words which are taken from Psalm 22 describe that, that forsakenness, that separation, that distance that Jesus now feels and knows in these moments from his father, his father who has always been close, his father who he has spent time with in prayer, his father who has opened the heavens on different occasions to declare something over his son who he loves, his father, his greatest champion, his father, his closest companion. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus has been separated from his father in these moments, his greatest hour of need. There is a spiritual dimension to what's going on here. But the spiritual dimension exists not just for Jesus in his experiences, but for all of us. Why do I say that? Well, John, who wrote this account of his death that we're looking at, who wrote these words in the introduction to his gospel, to his good news story about Jesus, in the introduction, in the prologue, he has this great description of who Jesus is and why he came. And in it, we read these words. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. It's this idea, this spiritual truth, that Jesus in some way is the one who contains, who, who holds, who embodies, who has in himself life. And that life gives light to you and to me and to the world. It's this idea that, that, that Jesus, we, we read in the scriptures that, that Jesus was, was, was involved, that he was, he was paramount in making all of this and also in sustaining all of this. The world, the physical world, you and me. Maybe that's why as we read the different accounts of Jesus' death, after his death, the world was plunged into darkness for three hours. It's as though the world itself was saying our sustainer has gone. We don't know what to do. We're starting to crumble. We're starting to fall apart. But that reality, we should read it as true, not just for the world, but for you and for me as well. Because if this life was the light of all mankind, then there's a spiritual dimension and reality to this for you and for me as well, which I want to look at for a brief moment. See, if Jesus was the, the light... If in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, then Jesus embodies hope and life and light. Jesus is those things. Jesus holds those things. It's, it's through him that everything hangs together. It's through him that you and I can have hope, can have joy, can have life as we're meant to have it, can have spiritual life, can have connection to our Father, that our souls can be full, not empty. This is all those kinds of things that, that this statement that in him was life and that life was the light for all mankind, for all people, for all of humanity. Him being alive, him being light, him shining and continuing to shine is what gives hope, is what sustains all things, is what holds all things. He is the very embodiment of the life and the light that you and I so desperately need. 
to, to, to live a life that transcends just our comings and our goings and, and what's going on physically for us, but to have a spiritual dimension to our life, an eternal dimension to our life. Those things the Bible says very clearly are dependent on the life and the light and the sustaining that Jesus can give. So on Good Friday, what we hear is the story not just of a man physically and brutally being murdered. What we hear is the story of this light. This light that gives life, this light that gives hope, this light that gives energy, this life that gives power, this light that gives everything we need. <sighs> Gone. Snuffed out. Dead. Plunged into darkness. There is a physical horror for those who look and see this event. But we need to remember a spiritual horror exists as well. When we see this light of the world snuffed out, killed like a common criminal. If what the Bible says about him is true, that he's our sustenance, that he is the source of our light and life then we should look at this and we should feel hopeless, uh, empty. If this is the end of the story, if this is the end of the road, then where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? The source of our hope, the source of our, source of our light, gone. But this isn't the end. And not just because of what we get to remember on Sunday, but because of what is happening today because of what's happening in this story. I said we would carry on reading from these words in John. I want to read one more verse that takes place just after Jesus has been offered that drink. He's, he's declared his thirst. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished, Jesus said. Now, he could just be maybe talking about his physical pain, that, that he, was, he was saying, I've had enough. I can't endure this anymore. I give up. I throw the towel in. I'm done. It's finished. A cry of defeat. That's not what's going on here. In this moment, in this moment when the light has been snuffed out, he is declaring it is finished, not as defeat, but as defiance. He is declaring it is finished into the spiritual realm. But what is it? What is it that is finished? Well, I want to say that in a great reversal, in a reversal that only God could plan and only God could orchestrate, what was happening here was not in fact the light of the world being snuffed out. It was darkness and death and decay being ended being snuffed out, being dealt with, being defeated. Why, why do I say that? Well, in these moments, the reason that there was that separation between father and son, the reason Jesus would, would, would cry out, why have you forsaken me? The reason for that, the reason for that distance and that separation was because of what Jesus in those moments chose and allowed himself to carry. 
because as he died on the cross, a great reversal took place, a great swap took place. Him for you, him for me. See, in him was light, and in him was that, that, that light gives light to us. But why do we need that light? Because in ourselves we contain darkness. In ourselves we contain failure and error and mistakes and mess-ups. In ourselves we contain selfishness. The Bible calls all of this sin. An attitude that says, even though I didn't make this world, I'm going to live as though I'm in charge of it. Even though I'm not responsible for my own life, I'm going to live as though I'm the centre of it, as though I'm the most important thing. I'm going to live for me and I'm going to ignore or reject anything that doesn't immediately help me. And I'm certainly going to reject God. I'm going to live my way because I know what's best for me better than he does, even though he made me. That's what the Bible calls sin and all of us are prone to that. And it manifests in so many different ways. All of us, if if we knew our life's events were going to be broadcast to the world, we would want to curl up in a ball and pretend we didn't exist because there would be parts that we'd be ashamed of. The Bible calls it sin. And in those moments, we're told in Scripture, Jesus took that from you and took that from me and he chose to take it upon himself. He chose to bear it himself. All of those things that put a barrier between you and God All of those things that put up walls between me and God, all of those things were taken on him. And so he had to endure that separation so that you don't have to, so that you can be close to God. The spiritual horror of what is going on is actually a spiritually life-giving truth. That every dirty secret, that every shame, that every failure, that every mistake has been placed on him and dealt with in that most cruel way, in that hardest of ways for him to endure for you, because of his great love for you, because of the Father's great love for you. They were willing to endure that separation for you. This great swap means that actually in these moments we can find hope because in it we see the very thing that we need dealt with, dealt with. It was not in these moments light ultimately that failed, that flickered and was snuffed out. It was death. It was darkness. It looked like a defeat for Jesus, the light of the world. It looked like darkness would now reign. But in fact, It was darkness that was dealt with. It was death that would be dealt with. Because of these moments, because of this, the great truth is that light could maybe return. That where we would have hopelessness because of what happened to Jesus, we could maybe, just maybe, have hope again. That where we might think all was lost, something could be found. That where we knew our own darkness, we might maybe be able to receive his light. All of this because of that sacrifice, because of what Jesus has done, because of his death, we might possibly, maybe, just maybe, have life. But it's still Good Friday. 
It's not Easter Sunday yet. Light has not returned fully and finally and vibrantly. Life has not been thrown open. We live in this moment and we remember in this moment not what would come on Easter Sunday, though I look forward to celebrating it. But what's happened in these moments, what's been achieved for us, that our darkness is dealt with, that we might receive, be given his light. He took on all that we are, that we might receive what he is. And he is light and he is life. This raises the question though, is it true? And I don't mean, is it physically true? Did it actually happen? Did Jesus die? very few serious historians who really would claim that anymore. There is so much evidence, far more evidence for Jesus's life and death than there is for so many historical events from the same time that we just take for granted. No, the question is, is the spiritual dimension true? Is this, 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 this interplay, this, this exchange of lightness and darkness, is that true? Can that possibly be true for you and for me? I want to pose that question in the words of the historian Tom Holland, who in a book all about the influence that that Christian life and the Christian witness has had on the world, he himself is not a Christian. He's, He's unsure. He's agnostic. He doesn't know. But he wrestles with this question and he puts it like this. He says the question we have to answer is, how was it? that a cult inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long-vanished empire came to exercise such a transformative and enduring influence on the world. I want to talk about a couple of those words at the beginning in a moment, but we can't deny, you cannot deny, the impact, the transformative and enduring influence, as Holland says, that Christianity has had on the world, that that, that people who, who, who believed in the significance of this moment and what would follow, that it has changed the world. There are, there are around two billion people across the world today who are Christians. That's more than at any point in history because it has kept on growing. The movement that began in the aftermath of these moments has gone on to change the world. In law books, across the world, particularly in the West, there are values and there are laws that are based or taken directly from Christian thought, from the Christian scriptures. There are ideas that you and I would hold as obvious, like the dignity of all human life, the fact that every human life is equal in value and worth. Those idea, that idea is commonplace today. It was not before the time of Jesus. He taught that and it was radical. The people who came after him held to that and it was radical, it was laughable. How could two people possibly be equal when one is rich and one is poor, when one is strong and when one is weak, when one is intelligent and when one is stupid? How could they possibly be equal and yet Jesus and the movement that came after him declares that they are and now we all believe it is true. We have been shaped by this. Whether we believe the spiritual truth or not, we have been shaped by this. But there's a couple of words towards the beginning of what Tom Holland says there. He says, how is it that a cult, I don't believe this is a cult, 
Of course, if it's not true, if Jesus isn't who he said he was, if there is no spiritual reality to all of this, then it was a cult. It was a, it was a man who gathered a following in order to meet his own desires and his own needs, and he tricked them and he fooled them. If it's not true, then it was nothing more than a cult. Tom Holland describes it as the execution of an obscure criminal. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is not obscure. And Jesus certainly wasn't a criminal. But if it isn't true, then that's what went on. He wasn't famous in his day. He robbed people of things. He took things from people. If this wasn't true. Of course, if it is... And he gave things to people. He expanded what they had. He gave them purpose and life and meaning. If this isn't true, then this thing that has gone on to change the world was nothing more than a cult founded by an obscure criminal. But if it is true, if it is real, if the spiritual dimension of what happened on that day and what would come after, if that is true, then it changes everything. Then it means that you don't need to live in darkness or in guilt or in shame. It means that you can have life and you can have hope. So the question for you is not, do you believe that Jesus died? The question is, do you believe there is significance to that? And if there is, will you trust in it? Will you commit to it? Will you respond to that today? Thank you very much.